Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to the Finding Backcountry podcast. This is part two, so to speak, not necessarily two different parts, but two different conversations that I've had with, uh, with Justin Gordon. And, uh, you know, the first episode will have already been released here. And so, uh, the backstory on this deal and is we recorded one episode months ago. Um, the audio maybe for better, maybe for worse. I don't know. The audio just didn't come through well on my, on the phone or whatever. And I wasn't comfortable with it. And this is, you know, Justin's, uh, got enough, you know, mule their knowledge and, and a sweet story that I wanted it to be right. And so, I sat on it. I was in, in his hometown here. And so I met up. So we're doing this in person. The audio should be, should be awesome. Um, but what, what we did, you know, the, the last podcast was like two and a half hours or three hours or something. If we, yeah, if you would have aired that, I don't know that anyone ever would have listened. to <laughs> they, might, they probably never got through it. Huh? <laughs> well, they would have been like this guy. Yeah. And, and so we jumped on, we just knocked out, um, tactics. We just knocked out like, mule deer the art of finding a unit uh you know choosing gear how you're gonna move how you're gonna you know tactics on these bucks we didn't get anything into into anything specific and that leaves us you know with the second podcast here of sitting around a campfire and two guys just telling a story one guy telling a story one guy listening and asking questions um about a buck that is just on another level and there's bucks that are on other levels. And then there's, there's this deer. Um, he's on the next level, you know, again, I know that this could go a lot of different directions uh, when you bring this deer up yeah. and it has, I've seen it, I've watched it on social media. You know, if you're not, uh, familiar now with, with the Gordon buck, um, you know, just Google it. I'm sure I'll Google it while we're talking here probably, but, you know, there's, there's just, um, it'll be all over the internet or whatever. So, um, man, how do I even begin? You know, the, there's bucks and then there's bucks and, and this, I, I'm not going to say anything more. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything more. I, I, I just want to, um, for someone who is completely never heard of this deer, um, let me just give my my 30-second synopsis, my three-second synopsis. This deer looks closer to a caribou than he does a mule deer. Is that pretty fair to say? He's funky. Yeah, he's funky. He's like nothing you've ever seen before. Um, and so with that, <laughs> I want to introduce, reintroduce the man, the myth, the legend, the Justin Gordon. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is a cool setting, man. We're sitting here, uh, you know, hunting season's winding down, and we're sitting in your office overlooking uh, downtown Salt Lake and, uh, you know, just, just talking hunting story now. Um, you know, what, 
how how did your life change when you shot this deer? Let's start with that. I'm curious. Or did it? Interestingly enough, I it changed. I knew that I had killed something very unique, right? Uh, but I had no idea. So, and and once, and so I went home, went to the taxidermist, <laughs> I handed him the deer, and didn't think anything of it. Um, and there was, it's just people are more aware now and pay closer attention to what I do when I'm archery hunting. And they're, and that's a very, very small group. There are a handful of people that I think would be interested in knowing what, you know, how I hunt and what I, how I go about things. And, and that small group was, it was a, was a group of zero before I killed this deer. So that's, a, I mean, honestly, I think we've done a decent job of respecting the animal, keeping it under the radar. Those who want to recognize the animal for what it is, uh, do so. And, and there are a lot of others that kind of want to speculate about what it is. But it's a, it's just a, a mule deer that, and I'm happy to debate it because no one has science on their side in this instance, right? And I just have to look at the animal. And I look at animals that have the big, massive crap around their bases. And I look at the pedestals that come off of deer that really are true. You know, this deer has some hormonal issues. There's no doubt about it. But um, what's changed the most is is I, I, I didn't realize I hunt mule deer because they are unique. I hunt mule deer because they're difficult to find. And big mule deer and old mule deer are even more difficult to find, right? And I didn't realize that any deer that's this unique could could um create so much it's kind of polarizing well and that in and of itself is so intriguing to me i don't understand so it even just the principle right that um you see when people get frustrated like physically frustrated visually frustrated rather when someone kills a buck that's say a cactus buck or something like that that's there's a genetic indifference or whatever or genetic difference rather um and for some reason people judge that or something and and it's like like well yeah that like almost as if that doesn't count like they imply that you know and it's it's like it's like as if the buck made a choice or anything like that first of all you know it's not like this isn't like baseball where everyone took steroids and like Barry Bonds hit a million home runs and it was like, well, you know, yeah, but you know, there's an asterisk there because because you chose to do something as a human. This is just a deer living his life and he grew that big of antlers. Period. Yeah, that's it. You know, and it always baffles me like why that whole cactus thing is even, you know, like or whatever. Like why? Why does it matter? Well, in this deer, it's. I would, people say, oh, it, it grew these antlers over multiple seasons because it didn't shed. Uh, I think that anyone who had a chance to, including the taxidermist that did the deer and, and the Pope and Young guys that measured it, obviously, when all they had was the skull plate and the antlers. And I would, you look at those antlers close enough, I believe that that, this, that they were shed. And I just think that something well, happened in this deer's life. And, um, dude, it, it just... It threw a set of antlers that it may have never, we may have never seen again had I not killed it that year. Maybe it would have been completely different the next year. Yeah, and because I don't even. It but, had a full set on it, right? That's yeah. what I'm talking about. So I'm like, 
Two testicles, you mean? Yeah. Completely and, intact, and, normal. And, and normal size and everything. They weren't, you know, the shriveled up version and everything else that everyone. Well, and my answer to all that, though, that you were saying before is like, so. so. Yeah, you're right. You, you know what I mean? So. That's so. exactly like, right. Even if he did, so. Like, the buck still was as big as it was, you yeah. know, and you hunted around for a buck that was of that, you know, not no one hunts for that deer. No one hunts for that deer. Yeah. And maybe that's what frustrates people is that you're the one that, 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 that's a hundred percent. I think what frustrates people is that you're the guy that found that deer. I got lucky. The one that, yeah, the, no, no. I'm the lucky dude. No. That's true. No, there's a, you missed, you misunderstood what I said. <laughs> not hunting for that deer is just an implication that you, it's just not a deer you go out thinking you're going to find. No. You know, even if you see it, you're just like, what did I just stumble upon? You know, luck. Luck is the guy who bebops on his four-wheeler, you know, and a 200-inch buck on private land runs across the road, and he pulls his bow off the four-wheeler and shoots him, you know, or whatever, one time in his life. That's luck. You know, you're back there putting in the time and the effort, and I'm I'm just passionate about this whole conversation yeah. because it's always just like, yeah, so? Like, so? It, and that's why I, I did find the comments on the Hoyt Post comical and why I want to continue. Now I'm going to throw things out on Instagram and see if I can attract some, <laughs> attract some fun stuff. But it's, so this deer, you know, getting into the hunt, and I'll let you ask me some questions about things that you think or maybe details people don't haven't heard or don't understand, but. Well, that that's the first one is, let's clear it right now. Um, I know you and your small group of hunting friends well enough to, to know the answer to this, but was this a high fence deer that you guys planted in, in any way, shape or form? I'd feel bad even, even asking that, but it's ridiculous. Like you said, when you get on and look at Instagram comments, you're like, oh my gosh, people really, they really believe that. I genuinely thought most of those guys were joking, but they weren't, they're that dumb, (laughs) but uh, it's not, it's, if you could do that, that's the beauty of mule deer. And I think that's one of the things that they have failed miserably at trying to raise mule deer domestically, right? The way they can whitetail. They have elk herds where they, you know, they have meat and antler harvested and, and elk herds that are behind fences. Literally farmed, right? Yeah. So, so much less a high fence area. You can't farm mule deer. They have high fences, but the successful high fences for mule deer are, are, are I don't know where they are, but they're, it's basically open country with high fences, private land. Yeah. This, this buck was, this buck, uh, I've never hunted private land. I've never had that luxury. I take that back. My uncle here in Utah has some nice property years and years and years ago when you could go buy a landowner tag or you would buy a landowner trespass permit for five yeah. or 10 bucks. <laughs> Yeah, back in those days. Yeah, when it was free. Yeah, I hunted I hunted some private land here in Utah. Now that same land is all part of this massive CWMU that one outfitter has that has 200,000 acres in this state. But this deer was, it was just prototype public land yeah. on a hunt that I think for archery, I don't know if it's somewhere between. Give a point range. Yeah, you don't it's, need it's it, yeah. somewhere in that zero to three points. I've legitimately pulled this tag as a second choice. Right. Yeah. And, and, and let me, before you go any further, like, let me back up as I'm thinking about this, like, yeah. um, now that I say that I'm guessing 
So first of all, I have some very strong bite. Like I feel like I'm in your corner because we're friends. You well, know? that and I rented your llamas and they packed the animal out. But right. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, so you know. So I know. You have like an idea. I, yeah. And it's just different. Like when you're in the circle of the guy who's who's getting rocks thrown at him or whatever, and you yeah. know the truth. You know, you're just like. Like I jumped on, I never jump on the stupid comments. Yeah. I jumped on and I was like, blah, blah, <laughs> like, yeah, blah, you know, throwing all these jabs back, you know, or whatever. And so that being said, I'm sure I, I'm not implying anything about any animal ever. I'm really not, but I'm sure that an elk has been planted somewhere on public land from a farm and probably been shot. That that's probably taken place. There's just too much. There's too much emphasis put on size there's yeah. too much money out there there's too many guides that it's their you know a guy a guide if you could pull that off a guide could make his year's salary boom right there you know yeah. or and and we know we know of the the i was gonna use a cuss word the crap stains in the in the hunting world that on the you know have also gone the other way of where they they're hunting in a high fence and they try to play it off yeah and so that's where all of those comments stem from. And so on the on the other hand, I have empathy and I understand why I just, in this case, I just know because yeah. I know you, I know the situation and I just, you know, it's just not. So yeah. There, yeah. Let's, let's, okay, I'm done. So that's the, that's <laughs> the fun part. I mean, this, uh, and I guess that's why I can, I can laugh at those things because they truly look like com comedy when I look at what I, where I was and what we were going through to harvest this animal. So I can read those and, and genuinely, I've never taken any of it harshly because it's not attacking me. Unfortunately, it's attacking an animal that yeah. is quite amazing. Um, and, and that is what it is. It's now dead and, and it's on my wall. Um, End so, of story. No, yeah, so you, can, you can attack it all you want, but it is what it is. But so, but it, look, long story short is this deer ended up in, in back in the middle of a place where you just don't cross paths with people. Uh, like I said, if I'm, if I, if I were to backpack there, I have spent an entire day under pack getting into this area. Um, and so that tells you how far it is. You're not only covering a lot of distance, but you're covering a lot of vertical feet. So if it's going to take people, you know, in, in reasonably good health with a little bit of weight on their pack a full day to make it in there, you've covered a lot of ground. Uh, and that's much more effective than private ground and high fences in uh, keeping people out. Just good old public ground, wilderness area, um, nasty terrain, a lot of steep stuff. And um, I think one of the most unique things about this deer, and this is, it's something that I always, I'm always, I always believe that there's a deer that is just so nocturnal that I didn't see it. It doesn't matter if I'm on a scouting trip or if I've been there for 12 days and I'm closing out a hunt, I'm like, man, there's a deer here that I didn't find, right? There are big deer that die of old age that don't get seen, you know, and, and I believe that about mule deer. That's, I mean, all of a sudden they'll, they'll accidentally show up on the winter range when a snowstorm hits, Yeah, you know, a week earlier than they normally do and they get killed, you yeah. know, that's, and you're just like, wait. Yeah. This is a I seven hunt, year yeah, old, buck. I hunt that high country right up from where he winters. Like what in the heck? You know that. Yeah. And I it. know that those animals exist. This animal didn't show up until 
the first time anyone from our group laid eyes on it was so five days in, right? Uh, I'd have to look, but five days in, we felt like we knew everything that was in the different drainages that we were trying to to hunt. Do you feel like he was there the the all the while, yeah, or there's, there's nothing that happened? That it wasn't like he no. came from three drainages over and got spooked. You don't feel like no, I I I know because. I can get on a point and look three changes over and tell you whether or not there's a, you know, there's, there's someone that's brought an elk hunter in there and that happens, but it's so much lower. And they're just, it was early enough that the elk hunters hadn't started to come in, you know, because elk hunters will be brought in on pack horse or they'll, they'll hike in. And well, no and was, was he in. that time of year too indicates a lot to me because was he, he was still up. I assume in in summer mode, oh, up, yeah. up like relatively high, 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 like, yeah. like, yeah. And 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 I feel like you know you, you, um, those bucks when they when they and when it's that late into the season, like when the seasons hit go, and then they get hard bumped, like they don't go from one, you know, summer mode on the top of the peak at 12.5 to the other one, they go from 12.5 down to 11.3 yeah. where they're just one bench down into some crap. And you know what I'm saying? Yep. Like they don't, they don't go from summer mode to summer mode when they get bumped that time of year, those big bucks, they go from summer beginning summer mode to summer sub mode. Like, Oh, here's the pressure. It's time yep. to do what I've been doing for six years now to not get killed. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. And, and that's why I believe that there are some bucks that just you don't you don't ever lay eyes on them, and if you do, you're really really fortunate. And I also believe that because I've watched enough of the old school videos back when it was VHS <laughs> and then DVDs of guys that have freaking ranches like the what's the one in southern Utah the 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 Heaton Ranch, Heaton. right? I've heard comments from I think it's Wade Heaton on an old video where he's like, we had never seen this deer before. Right, well, dude, it's a ranch. You guys are on there twenty four seven, and when a big mule deer buck goes full nocturnal and they're not aware, and trust me, they they know what's on their property. And this was back before trail cameras. Though. Yeah, this was back before trail cameras and stuff like that. But I'm hunting areas where it's just not a, it's not realistic, it's not practical to put trail cameras out or do anything to catch nocturnal animals. So you hear comments like that from guys that are on mule deer more than anybody else and a mule deer comes out of nowhere yeah and that's kind of what happened here i mean a lot of these deer even when they're in their summer range you see the pictures i have some on my phone where they're laying in snow you know that hasn't melted off on the right side of the of the slope there or, or whatever but there are other deer that just they have a similar pattern where they feed into some thicker cover and uh, sometimes they do that before the sun comes up and i kind of think that's what was going on with this deer I didn't see him during the scouting trip. I did. I did make it in there, um, looking like I try to most of the time. Um, I, I definitely looked in that drainage on my scouting trip. Um, uh, that was a that was a morning scouting session as well, so I was there at premium time. Uh, and then my friend, who initially found the deer, had been in that drainage religiously at sunup the first five days of the season, without fail. And he's got the right glass and has as much or more experience than anyone else I know glassing mule deer. Okay. Um, so for him to suddenly find this deer 
five days into the hunt. You didn't miss him. You just, it wasn't visible. Yeah, that deer. Uh, so that was the first kind of really interesting component of, about this hunt is that we things weren't going the way we thought they were. It was a dry year in 2018. It was dry everywhere in the West. Um, we weren't seeing the numbers. We weren't seeing the quality. We weren't seeing them as high. Even, you know, I, I, I'd heard, I think, um, Randy Ulmer or someone else had said something similar about Colorado. The deer at the very beginning of archery season were at or in timberline. They weren't, you know, just above it. We were in, we were in a three point unit, the argue, you know, on paper on go hunt, a better unit than probably where you were at, I mm -hmm. would assume. Yeah. And, uh, that same year, I think maybe the year before anyway. No, I think it was that same year. And yeah, same deal. I mean, we just, bucks were just not up high. They were tough to find. Yeah, they just weren't up high. So this guy comes kind of out of nowhere. And uh, and we were thinking all the same things. What helicopter dropped this animal <laughs> from a farm back here? Because that's the only way it's getting there, right? It's like, uh, this. where did this thing come from? And we were trying to go back through, have we seen anything like this in past years or scouting trips or this, that, and the other? Yeah, there was this one buck a couple years ago that was really gnarly, and maybe he just blew up, blew up this year, whatever. But uh, the interesting thing about this deer is, as once we found it, was that it then showed up consistently for the next five, six, seven days, or whatever it was, until I killed it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I made it; it did not let the sunshine hit it. So, if I if I can. Describe it correctly, you essentially have maybe a southwest-facing slope. And so where the deer is feeding at sunup is extremely gray and tough light early. And then you would see the peak that was off to the southwest that was, I guess that would be facing, what is that, east? More, more easterly-facing peak. That's the first peak in that area that gets sunshine. And I'm doing a horrible job of describing it because I'm just seeing it in my mind and this is how it is, right? But that first peak in the area that gets sunshine, when it gets sunshine, you're 40 minutes away from sunshine actually hitting yeah. the basin that we're glassing, plus or minus. And that deer was heading for cover long before sunshine ever hit the basin that we were glassing. He was... Um, he just didn't like to be out in the sunlight for whatever reason. And I just think that something changed just enough that for those days that we got to, to watch him and hunt him before I actually got in on him, he stayed out of, literally, it was minutes. It's not like you're talking, oh, he was out for a half an hour. No, he gave us an extra seven minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes before he moved off. How far were you guys from him? Uh, Google Earth as the crow flies. It was like 780, 900 yards, something like close. that. It's in that Relatively range. Yeah. Close. Yeah. Not miles. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, and glassing from what, like what direction were you like? I got to look at that again. Was it? No, you know what? It was a little over 1200 yards. It was a little over 1200 yards. I'm thinking of different distances. We could Google Earth it really quick, but anyway, still it's not like, it's not. You're glassing him from somewhere to the south because you can see kind of a south-facing, southeast-facing slope, you said. Yeah, we're up above, um, almost on the same ridge as the, as, as the ridge that provides the shadows into his, into his basin, sort of. So 
and there there are other deer in there with him there are elk you know that are in the timber down below and there's coyotes rolling around in there it's just your typical high country mule deer hunt uh and for whatever reason this guy decided to show himself for a few days and we we had relocated we had changed plans we had done a lot of things that were just a few drainages off or different parts of the uh the area than what we had originally planned based on the fact that we just weren't seeing things uh we talked about this maybe a little bit uh in the previous episode i can't remember but um how how many years like just get a feel for how often you've hunted this unit like and just to to illustrate how valuable that can be yeah i know this unit really well because i started hunting it i think nine plus years ago plus or minus i think i've scouted it a couple of seasons outside of that so i'd have to go look at the calendar but i've I've walked in and out of there in the summertime for at least 10 years. Uh, and then um, hunted um, other I mean, units when I, I mean, couldn't bull the tag or whatever. Not on this specific buck because like you've, you've kind of uh, implied, I mean, to some extent, he this buck wasn't, it's not a buck you just go in there looking for. Obviously, there's <laughs> no. a little bit of aspect of just coincidence or whatever. But yeah. um, just generally speaking, and I'm, I know I'm getting back to tactics. No, right? that's good. But just real quick, like what, how does that play on just being successful in general over the years? I mean, well, you, cause I, uh, you've killed some, some nice bucks. You've heard it said, and it's absolutely true. I, I'm always surprised, but you just, you know, where the animals are and where they're going to go when they get bumped. Yeah. Right. And nothing can replace that when you've got to get within 50 yards, which is what I like to do is be in that range. Um, just time there with the animals. Where are they when it's dry? Where are they when it's a wet year? That's it. it it's invaluable. Okay. I won't interrupt your story with tactics stuff anymore. <laughs> I, I, that's why we did it this way. If you want tactics, go back to the previous episode. Uh, no, but, please do. So your buddy finds this buck and walk us through that dynamic of how you became the one that got to hunt this and then, and then B what it, what it's like hunting with someone or, or what that dynamics like of hunting with a guy that glasses a buck like this. And then you're the guy that hunts him. Well, those are the blessings of having the right guy as a hunting partner. Right. I mean, it's just, it was a pretty leery buck. And ultimately the guy that I hunt with felt like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to have an opportunity to get on this deer. Now, I had gone in late because I'd sent my son off on a mission. Uh, so I went into the hunt, I think, the day before we turned this deer up. We'd been communicating via the in-reach text messages, what's going on, and it was all very dismal. He was in there on Saturday and, and sending messages just like, dude, it's, it's a bad year. And he found this deer and I was actually back at base camp because I'd gone out to glass a different area first thing in the morning. And my other friend that was with me wasn't feeling well. We went back to base camp and the guy that spotted this buck initially just came running into camp, <laughs> right? Just came running into camp, stuttering. And, and uh, I really can't do it justice. He, he couldn't form a really good coherent sentence 
and he was getting out his big DSLR that he had hooked up to a Swarovski to try and show me on a, you know, whatever those stupid screens are on a DSLR, how big this deer was that he had just seen. Let me show you. I can't speak. (laughs) Yeah. And then he pulls up his DSLR and I'm trying to see and differentiate antlers and tree branches (laughs) on that little tiny screen. And it's all antler, it turns out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I was like, I was a little, you know, and the, what was interesting is that in that same exact moment, and again, you can't put it, you can't accurately, I don't possess the the ability to really describe, okay, when a friend looks at you and is like, you've got to kill this deer. Now there's two things that went into that. I hunt the biggest deer we can find in almost every year I walk out empty handed. And he knows that about you. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. guys and, you guys have that in your relationship. And it's just almost an agreement. I mean, I don't go in blowing things out because he's looking for a good stockable buck, something that's going to bed down in an area where he can go stock it and have fun. And he goes on more stocks in 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 a couple of days often than I'll go on in an entire hunt. And we just know that about one another and it's all good. And so I steer clear. I'm never going in you know, blowing animals out with my scent or doing anything because there's an opportunity for him to stop. So I keep my distance and we worked well, work well together that way. But the commitment to say, Hey, I just looked through binoculars and found the biggest deer I've ever seen in my life. And this is a guy that's probably consistently killed at least one mule deer for the last 30 plus years. Legitimately. I mean, it's stupid. And that's with a bow and arrow. That's not with a rifle. So, so when he says, Hey man, I just saw the biggest mule deer I've ever seen in my life. And then says, you need to kill this buck. Like with an intensity that was twofold. I have wanderlust. So he's like, don't go wander. Just a couple of years before we had a really cool deer that uh, I found opening morning and I walked away because I was like, well, I just am going to go over here and glass. <laughs> and, you know, at the end of that hunt, I was kicking my my own butt because I would have killed myself. You know, I'm not killed. I would have done a lot to try to kill the deer that I walked away from on opening morning. And I didn't realize it at the moment because I was like, yeah, that's a super big deer, but I really, really want to go over here. Just to, and every, you know, a lot of people have that. So when he says to me, dude, don't screw around. This is where you're going to focus your time and attention. You're not going to find anything bigger somewhere else. Um, and then he just full committed right there. You're going to kill this deer. I'm out. Well, there's a valuable takeaway there that I need to learn, I think, when I'm on my hunts because I typically – lights just went out on us. We've been, hey, we've been in here podcasting so long that the – you can move this around. You know, I've been hunting with the same guys, you know, most years, and um, we're going to podcast in the dark. This isn't weird at all. They killed the main switch on me. That's right. Hopefully they didn't arm the alarm system or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've, I've hunted with the same, you know, it's usually my brother or my buddy Corey or, uh, you know, and when I'm hunting with those guys, we're all kind of on the same my brother thinks he's starting to kind of differentiate himself. You know, he, he seems to chase these bigger bucks and that's, you know, uh, 
but I want to chase bigger bucks too, you know? And so we're all, we all want the same thing. And, and, and so my, my value, the valuable takeaway there, it's not that you can't hunt with guys like that, but if you're going to share the same glassing ridge, yeah, push is going to like, someone's going to get pushed out. Yeah. You know, and we've hurt ourselves. I've talked about this before, but we've hurt ourselves over the years because we all have the same goal and we're all sitting on the same glassing point. Okay. And when that same goal, when there's only one of them, maybe on the entire mountain range, but definitely only from one vantage point, do the math. When there's three guys sitting there, only one's going to get a chance, you know? And so, um, where the lesson I need to learn from that is if you are going to hunt with guys with the same goal, you need to do it from three different vantage points where you're not looking into each other's basin. Yeah. Or you need to find a guy like a hunting partner that is your yin and yang, you know, that's like, Hey, you know, I'm okay stocking a 156 buck. And I respect you enough to know that you're not going to go do that or blow out my opportunities. And so I can feed you, you feed me type of a thing, you know, yeah. there's some value there. I've had situations where we had, uh, we had a guy that I, I hunted with for a couple of years and his goals changed. And one year they changed on the mountain, right? It's like, <laughs> no, no, we, we came, Surprise. <laughs> yeah, we came in here and this is how this was all laid out. Right. And it, yeah. And now you're looking at 195 inch typical and now you want to do rock, paper, scissors to decide who goes in on that thing? <laughs> oh, hell. So. Um, yeah, communication ahead of time. <laughs> that's right. You know, and then, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, there's. So that, that, that was a big dynamic. Um, and, and I still look back on that and I'm like, wow. And, and none of us knew what this animal was. I mean, we were like looking at pictures going, oh man, there's enough stuff going on there. He's got a clip 240, 250 just because of all the extras. Right. And you were right. Well, yeah. Yeah. No idea. I had no idea that there were 47 scorable points on it. Right. It's just, just crazy. So the days go by. I, I made a couple of attempts. Um, just wasn't right and backed out. I mean, that's pretty typical when you're focused on an animal. Uh, I dropped in on this deer a couple of times early uh, over the course of the next few days and nothing really worked out and got out before I blew any of its buddies out or it. And they just moved off into their bedding ground. And what was interesting is the way this particular little plateau worked in relation to the total drainage and the way the wind worked. And they would work into the wind, even though the thermals hadn't changed. You didn't have thermals. Just based on the way this, this canyon was situated in the morning, they they would follow their nose off into the bedding ground, which was kind of downhill and down off the a little ways. Um, Dropping how what? Uh, anywhere, I'd say a couple hundred feet. But then I don't know where they would go because they would go into some thick, gnarly stuff where I don't care if you were. I don't know if you could have picked them out if you if watched them walk in there. If you watched them walk in there from another ridge. Right. And there wasn't anything close by. I would have had to have one of the tactics that I looked at because I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is not going to give me a chance to get in position before he goes off into that stuff. And I'm not going into that stuff on a spot, on a, on a still hunt. Why? Because there was no way ever I was going to beat the number of eyes and find him before he found me. No way possible. So 
I was one day by the time I was one day away from relocating camp and spending an entire day to basically go around on a far side of another drainage. And I would be a ways away, but I would be able to glass back and watch them go in and find their afternoon bed. And then it would have been a couple of hours to work myself back around on top of them. But I was, that was about my only choice. And that's, because, I mean, just to paint the picture, even though you're locating him early, first thing in the morning, you're losing him all day. Yeah. I mean, done. S- like on a micro scale, on a macro scale, you still know he's obviously in this basin down here somewhere. Just hoping that he shows up at night or hoping that I see him the next morning. Never once. And I was on the ridge every single night. How long did that go on? That went on, I think, five days. I'm pretty sure it was five days. Never once did he show himself at night. And every single morning, it was just waiting for waiting for enough light and just and then frantically glassing every single deer you could see and hoping you could find him before he had or, you know, how so, much time? Uh, like I said, there were some mornings where maybe we had seven minutes. Other mornings where we maybe had fifteen to eighteen minutes before he was gone. So it was, it was, uh, it was interesting. I mean. It, Every that's what's so cool though is as you know, every single you can hunt the same unit, and every single hunt is going to provide an entirely different situation. Every deer, yep, every deer, entirely different circumstances. So I was one day away from relocating around into another drainage that, from a certain vantage point, I could glass and watch where they went to bed, and then I could go light and fast and run around and get on top and hopefully find my landmarks and get in on them. But after a few days, um, what changed was we had a weather system in the drainage adjacent to us one morning. And, you know, the light snow that kind of starts to fall. And this deer was doing his thing. What was interesting, though, is we didn't find him first thing. And I was like, oh, man, he's not not here. He's not here. And then I turned him up. And he was, like I said, this was about five days, I think, after we first located him. Um, he was higher than we'd ever seen him before on the face. And then on clockwork, it was still gray light. And I had, and, and, but it was getting lighter. He was out past any time that I, that he had been in the past. And by, by my recollection, and he was higher than all the other bucks. And then almost the instant that I found, well, when I found him, he was working down pretty aggressively working down towards his old exit exit area. And um, I watched him as this, as it started to get lighter in that drainage. Again, the sun was nowhere near hitting him, but as it started to get lighter and it was past that gray fuzzy glassing light, you know, the, it's almost pixelated. Like you're looking at an old TV screen, even through the best binoculars because it's so gray and dark. He beelined it straight past all of his, all of his buddies who stayed a little bit higher, a little bit later. And he just walked on a really nice walk straight down. And he was going to exit within a hundred yards of where he had exited every day that we'd seen him. And there was a weather pattern adjacent drainage. The wind, it kind of moved over through a saddle and the wind shifted. And you could see it because I was looking at snowflakes kind of starting to fall real lightly. And you could see the snowflakes flip around and hit him in the butt through the binoculars. 
And I didn't put two and two together the first second, but with, you know, half a minute to kind of see what was going on, I was just amazed. As soon as he couldn't follow his nose into that cover, he froze. Unbelievable. When I say froze, he froze and sat and chewed his cud, standing. Long enough that after about 15 minutes, I was like, oh my gosh, did I just miss my opportunity? He hasn't moved. He just stood still chewing his cud with the wind hitting him, and the wind isn't working so that he can go where he wants to go. So with a deer standing, I know he's not in his, in his bed. He's not going, you know, I'm like, well, I'm dropping. And the other reason that that made sense is because he was still a couple hundred yards lower now. He had moved below and past all the other deer in the drainage. So the bachelor herd that he was with was with the terrain features and everything else that existed. I just had a plan and goals in mind. Drop as fast as I can. And it's, it's a little bit of a sketchy descent, like you find yourself in a lot of times. Um, but it can be quick. To get down to his level, check the wind at that level, and it, I, which I did. And the wind was coming such that basically my scent would be running parallel with him unless I got right on top of him, right? So it would be passing him by. So I had several hundred yards of now less sketchy terrain that I could basically run through. And my first objective was just, here's a bachelor herd that's above him and he's down below behind some terrain features. He can't see them. He can't see me. How uh, far? Uh, at that point in time, I think I had five to 700 yards to cover. Because no, how far was he from that other bachelor group? Probably 150, 200 yards plus or minus. Close. Right? He had just moved off, but he had moved down into this steep little area where they would head off far enough that, like I said, he couldn't see me and he couldn't see them and they could see me. So second objective was to move them off so that it was just one-on-one. Eliminate the chance of them buddying up yep. back with him. Yep. Yep. Get all the eyes out of there. Um, it just, when things work out, they work out. Um, the other animals, the other does and others that had been in the drainage, they were so far removed from the entire situation, they weren't even in play because they were way at the other end of the drainage. And it, it, it just, the way things happen was, you know, miraculous that it all came together. So the first, first goal was get the other deer out of there because they're not going to spook him. Is that a tactic that you've used in the past in other stocks or how did you, because like I picture that, and, and it's not that I wouldn't, I would probably have waited too long until they all buddied up, Yeah, you know, and screwed myself. But even if, even if they bedded in separate spots, I would have, I would have all, like, I could just see myself trying to plan my stock around those other deer, not even, not, e- not even picturing in my mind, oh, why don't I just blow them out purposely and be, be purposeful about that? You know? So what is it that, that crossed your mind or why did that cross your mind? Uh, sometimes you just get, I had never done anything like that in the past. Um, <laughs> there's so many things that happen in archery hunting when it all comes together, honestly, half, most of the time I sit back and I'm just like, that was all divine. <laughs> that was all divine intervention. 
you know, the thought of moving those deer off, I don't know where that came from. Yeah. You know, that was just a real brilliant thought that I can't give myself credit for, but it came into my brain. So I'm just running across the drainage going, okay, get those deer out of here. And I have the luxury, the train features allowed me to do that, right? Like clockwork, they move off, up over, they're gone, they're out of play. And so as far as I can tell, it's me and him. Did you have, did you still have eyes on him as you're pulling all that off or was it a blind like? No, basically <clears throat> two minutes after I left my glassing spot, he was there, that terrain feature that I'm talking about, he was out of my sight. Flaggers though, you had, you had guys spotters. I had, I had one spotter with, communicating back with, and forth. with game bags telling me. Yeah. Game bags are up. He's in play. Game bags are down. So that's as good as having eyes on him. Yep. You know, the value yep. of having a spotter there. Yep. Yep. Um, a couple of days earlier, I had dropped in on him, and I was like, I'm going to go light and fast. I took my bow and my rangefinder. <laughs> always, always a bad mistake. <laughs> and I got down there, and I turned around with my, what is it, a four or six power objective on your, on your rangefinder. I'm like, I'll be able to see if the game bags are up. You can't see crap. Yeah. <laughs> So I was, I was blind, but anyway, I had this time I kept my eights around my neck and I ran in there and, uh, I got to my, there was a fairly large, um, yeah, a fairly large rock outcropping. I've described it about the size of a small, I don't know, I'm probably wrong, but I mean, it's the size of a house. And that was the thing that kept me from seeing him and him from seeing me and the other deer and everything else. And then the, the terrain, the elevation difference between he and the other bucks and the shelves between them, if you will, if you can imagine that. And uh, dropped my boots, dropped my pack, and just crept up over the rock. And now I've got nothing because I can't see my spotter. I can't see the buck. And I'm like, well... There's nothing here. Um, when I say crept up over the rock, it was like climbing over the roof of your house, <laughs> right? To get up and around and over. And um, again, miraculously, while I'm just looking, I'm sure that that deer's laying in those willows and staring a hole through me or he's gone. And so I'm like, oh, man. Uh, but I find myself in a nice little shadow and so I just kind of sit back in, try to calm my breathing down and take a few deep breaths. And while I'm doing that, I see these antlers coming through the willows. And it's amazing what you, the, the terrain features that you can't make out at 100 yards until something brings them to your attention. And he walked out from behind a little outcropping and some willows and stuff that if I just look there, I don't see that he can be standing up broadside and be completely out of sight. And he just walked out and just materialized through these willows. And now he's in the open and he's staring right at me 80 yards away. And, um, crazy how that terrain, like that, even that close can hide a yeah, buck. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, this is all going on over the course of 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. Um, my spotter's frantic because he's like, <laughs> he sees me disappear over the rock. And he sees the buck come out and nothing's happening, right? And he has to sit there and watch that for the next, 
hour, hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> and you know what it's like. It is far more stressful oh. to be watching than it is to be in the, in the stock. It's like watching a sporting game or like a baseball game for me. Yeah. I'll sit and get nervous butterflies sitting watching a game. And when I was playing, it was like, yeah, whatever. Like this is just, I just doing what I'm doing, you know? Yeah. It's so true. It's a different level of kind of shakiness when you're watching it. Like I shake way worse watching my buddies go in on a stock than when I'm there. So he materializes and then just plops down 80 yards and I got nothing. I mean, he's, staring right at me but fortunately uphill yeah yeah so he's he's slightly he's quartering up there's a nice little flat spot and he's just quartering like this where he's not looking at you but his eye he can he could pick you up in his peripheral yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah he's easily i'm well within yeah. you know that the 270 something. yeah, yeah. Yep. like i'm not i'm i'm in i'm actually yeah, I mean, a human could see me, right? Yeah, 90 <laughs> degrees or whatever. And, and I got to go back because I crawled up over that rock only after I realized, okay, the wind has shifted. Since I left my glassing perch and now I'm here, I thought I was going to go down parallel to him on the, on the far side of the rock, keeping him out of sight using that big terrain feature. But the wind had shifted to where it was now coming up instead of going down. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get in sight of this guy. That's the way that he originally would have wanted it coming, right? When he was yep. going down that stopped him. Yep. Yep. So that was the other thing that led me to believe he's he's out of here. Or he laid down and he's staring at me and I've already blown this thing. So that gets us back to where I'm pretty much eighty yards and pinned down and what was sorry, I'm I'm just was he from where he, you saw him bed right there? Yeah. Was he generally looking back his back trail? Yeah, that's kind of interesting, but yeah. So because he had he had perfect if 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 he came in and and then bedded down on this little flat here, like I said, he was bedding so that he could see all of his back trail and then some. Right? Um not, and then not by accident. And then and I've seen so many bucks bed with their nose in the wind. And this is, this is not his bed where he's going to hang out all day. This is the other thing that I had going for me. When you have all these things come together, it's massively overcast. There's no sunshine. There's nothing hitting him that's going to kick him out of that bed, right? Because the, if it's a sunshiny day, he never lays down there, right? Um, and he's not going to lay down there for long anyway yep. uh, because it's still too early for that. But yeah, he could see everything. And the interesting thing about that is instead of bedding with his nose into the wind, now that you mention that, he was bedded so that he had the wind coming up and then he had his eyes to cover, and- to cover all of his back trail. And then he had his nose to cover what you know was coming up from below and what he couldn't see. Yep. So uh, he, I've got knee-high cover to move in and that's it. And I'm the cool thing though, is when he laid down, I was able to slowly raise my eights and some of the willows and the shrubs. I could see that his eyes were right at the same level of the tops of those. So he could see anything that was going to happen up where I was above him. But there was just enough there that, I may be able to get away with something. 
And so that kind of several minutes went by and I just really didn't have anywhere to go. And so I was like, I'm not going to take a shot at 80 yards. Do you, do you consistently practice at 80 plus yards? Yeah. This deer was one I wasn't willing to. I consistently practice it over a hundred yards because uh, it really magnifies all of your mistakes that you make. And I happen to live in an area where um, I have about four acres of property. And so I can set targets out to 160 yards. I have a driving range where I practice my golf game on my, on my <laughs> property, my wedges out to 150 yards. Right. So um, legitimately I have targets out where I'll shoot at 110 yards all summer long. And it's just because there's nothing you can do at 110 yards other than focus on the spot and press through the shot. Because if you do anything other than that at 110 yards, you're going to break arrows. And there's a big consequence because the only thing I have out there is one of those little, um, what are those uh, targets that never break down? Those black targets with with green spots. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, you know. Yep. Everyone knows it's listening. They're all saying it right now out yeah. loud. Yeah. So anyway, and it's the I think it's Reinhardt. Reinhardt twenty four by twenty four. It's mm -hmm. just a, a it's just a square, mm -hmm. and that thing will sit out there at one hundred and ten plus yards. And I'll practice a lot of different distances, but. As you know, you can't flinch, you can't move. If you only have a 24-inch box out there at 110 yards and you're aiming for the center, you better just press through that shot or you're going to break arrows. And arrows cost enough these days that <laughs> that's, a, that's a big consequence. So, yes, I am very comfortable. The furthest I've ever killed a mule deer is 70 yards, though. Have you or do you typically shoot deer in their beds while they're laying down, too? Um, no. No, nope. I've uh, on purpose or just the way it's worked out. Just the way it's worked out. I've actually sat and waited for them to stand up. That target gets really small, even at thirty yards. I mean, all of that stuff that you're shooting at when they're standing up that provides you a pretty big margin of error. Yeah, it or, goes from eighteen to twelve or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it gets pretty small. Um, especially I, if you're, if you're uh, like that uphill view, you know, and everything's kind of compressed where they're almost laying, they're almost laying sideways, mm -hmm. you know, cause they roll kind of under their side. And so you're yep. seeing almost a, almost a top view Yep. kind of, at least the depth is, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Now, if you're, if you're stalking from like the side or something and you've got their whole body exposed, it can be probably more more yeah. surface area but yeah i know what you're saying okay. yeah so come to think of it i've always been in a situation where the animals were were i was in position and, and waiting for them to get up from their bed before i took the shot and that's what you're going to do here yeah yeah that's what i had in mind well and and so i had i kind of sat on my butt and crab crawled down and 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 then i realized he would turn his head and i was actually in his only blind spot Right. What do you think? 270, 260 degrees, something That's like that. That's always been in my mind. That's just made up though. I'm sure it's cold. So. so there's very little window where you can move. And every once in a while he would do the head turn and I would see his antlers. And when I had a specific view of the shadow of his antlers, because I couldn't move, be looking through my binoculars, put them down quietly. And, and reference his eyes. And reference his eyes and yeah. move. I was looking through my binoculars when he turned his head and I saw that I was in his blind spot, put my binoculars down and he turned his head back. But then I had the reference point for when his antlers look like this, go, I can move. Go time. Yep. 
And it, that was six to 12 inches sliding on my butt laterally at a time because I wasn't moving closer. I was moving around to get into a different position, thinking that, okay, I'm going to get over here. And when he stands up, I'll get, by moving kind of laterally, I'm actually inching closer. When he stands up, I hope to be within 60 yards. Um, and then as I was doing that over the course of the next half hour, 45 minutes, I was, again, you can't make the wind stay good for that long. Those are all things that just happen. And afterwards, you're like, how did that happen? Mm. But, but that's the beauty of archery is you're just in the moment. And the only thing you can control is your thoughts and your actions, which is true of life in all situations. But archery makes it so clear that if something's going to happen, you control your thoughts and your actions, and then everything else is taken care of, right? And so that's it. Execute. Boom. Slide my butt six inches when his head turns and hope I don't get caught. And if I get caught, I had no other choice. Soft, relatively soft terrain, like green high country grass, or was it burned off yellow, crunchy that time of year? No, it was, um, I never even thought about that, but I, I was in a place where it was kind of willows, soft mud, because there were some seeps and some stuff Mm -hmm. going through there. Perfect. Right. And so it was kind of muddy and willows and, and I wasn't in the crunchy stuff, but there was plenty of crunchy stuff. It was a dry year and I just wasn't in that. And until you just asked that question, I had never even seen what a blessing that was. I was just in the right place at the right time. And so that went on for a while. And what I realized is I got so far over to what was my right looking down on the deer that the terrain feature that he came out from behind I was only a couple of wave, feet away from that obscuring his view of me. And, and that's when I was, and then even though most instances when you're in close quarters with a deer like that long enough, the, the blood pressure goes down, you can take a deep breath. And I've had many instances like my, one of my favorite deer on my wall, uh, the typical uh, 194, typical, by the time he, came out at like 34 yards you were just like i was like i mean I, get it I, over with i felt like <laughs> i was at a target range yeah. i was like Funk. Yeah. right well this deer as soon as i realized that i was going to get out of his sight ah uh, man the adrenaline started pumping hard and i was like oh my goodness this is this this might happen up until that point i was just like what you can do slide execute execute so i get to the side one more slide, he's out of view, and this is how the train is. At that point in time, I stand up and walk like I'm walking in my living room. The only difference is I have my five-finger shoes on so that he can't hear me. Do you slide socks over the top of those? Or no, just- because slots, I've always been in terrain <clears throat> where even if I went stocking feet, the socks would slide and roll, yeah. and I wasn't secure-footed to, to have the footholds that I wanted. Never had good luck with having anything bulky on my feet. And the five fingers are thin enough and quiet enough. Honestly, it's and and well, and I think even a even a dry year in Colorado um, is better suited for those. You know, uh, low country Nevada, even the wettest year, it doesn't matter. It could be physically raining at that time. And something like that with just a, a rubber sole, yeah, it's too loud. It's not yeah. going to work. 
you know, stockasins. I want to try that. Yeah. I want to see. I tried to, uh, you know how you used to buy felt for your waders? Mm. I got some, some really thin felt and used waiter glue to glue some felt, just individual pads, just follow the pattern of the five finger. Yep. So I glued a little pad on the big toe and then around on the heel and, and part of the underfoot to quiet and deaden that. And that, that, that did something. But um, when that wore off, I didn't really worry about replacing it. Yeah. My brother, he just started wearing those five fingers and then he'd slip. I think he's slipping a big wool sock over the top of them. Which the only thing I can see that would cause you problems there, and I don't, I'll have to talk to him, but is real steep yeah. ascents. You know, when you're coming down in like places like high country Colorado, sometimes you're doing that whole one leg straight down and one leg's completely bent, you know, yeah. four feet up the hill, it feels like, you know, and you're going side hill down, down, yeah. down, and that you're going to, those are going to slip and kind of slide. Well, and those five fingers, I mean, you can be really agile. Like you can get some footholds on some little rocks. And just absolutely be silent and and have plenty of dexterity or proprioception. So anyway, I stood up and just walked quietly, but walked right around on top of the feature that separated us. And I remember just kind of peeking out from behind the there was a, there were a couple of evergreens and some jack pines down at the end of the feature that obscured my view, and I just tilted my head out around and caught his right antler and he was facing in the right direction. I could see kind of, he was quartering away and I could see his body, the top of his back and just settled in like I was at an archery range, just kind of moved into position with my arrow. And just all I could think about was, okay, I want to be just same thing. You think about the archery range foot position first. Right. And then everything else kind of stacks on top of that. And, uh, and, and I think that I was kind of nonchalant enough about that, that he caught a little bit of movement <laughs> because he stood up and immediately looked that I had enough behind me and enough in front of me that is, and the plan was just as soon as the antlers bobble draw and he stood up, I came to full draw, he turned. You had ranges all, all oh, mapped yeah. out like that crazy. was the that was the fun part of the story because twenty six point seven yards is what you ended up shooting him at. I believe that was what the I've got to go back to my journal because I remember it was very distinct. So that cover in that ground when you're talking about walking, you covered some ground. You went from eighty to twenty, thirty, thirty yards or whatever, and fast. Yep, right. Spent an hour plus. <laughs> within 80 yards and then it was minutes yep. to, to get in on top of him 26.3 26.7 and that's significant because i've shared you know i set my top pin at 27 yards and that's right and i started doing that years and years and years ago because i wanted to go from i wanted a bigger gap between my first and second pin as bows got faster and faster 27 to 40 27 to 40 and i can cover anything inside of in in you know, in that 30, 35 range and in with that 27 yard pin and you just know where to hold. Well, and the, the valuable thing to take away there for someone listening, that's getting into archery, you know, they're going to go, whoa, 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 what a 20, 30, 40, 50. It doesn't matter as long. It only is matters if you don't practice with your gear. Yeah. It's the same with like, I've got the, the two pins stacked on a slider, you know, and it, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter where you set that 
slider pin. You hear guys talk about, oh, sliders, they're not as accurate. What if a bolt, you know, whatever. It's all relative to how well you know your equipment and your personal setup. Set your freaking pins wherever you want them. Yep. You know, that I've never even heard of that. But if you know it and that's what you've shot with all year and probably for 10 years or whatever, I don't know, but yeah. you've shot with it long enough that you were you were confident and you had no question in your mind where to hold that pin on a 23-yard shot, then it doesn't matter. Yep. Put your pin wherever you want. And it just so happens when you talk about miraculous things, if you've set your pin, top pin at 27 yards for the last, you know, 10, 12 years, and you're in front of the buck of a lifetime and you range it at 26.3 or 26.7, I think it's 26.3, but you range it almost right on your top pin. You can't plan that stuff. That's, that's when you know you're the luckiest dude there is, right? So he stands up and he, and as is always the case, nothing ever comes off without a hitch because I'm at full draw and there's this little shrub right at the end of the outcropping that is exactly over his vitals. I'm like, what the heck? How didn't I see that? But all this happens in a split second. I mean, the frustration of, I can't believe those are over his vitals. Do I shoot in front or behind the, the little shrub? Um, and then behind because he's quartering away just catch that last rib boom liver on the entrance lungs on the exit let him explain yeah give him four hours that was like that all of those thoughts went you know how the mind works and it's amazing how much of that goes through your mind that quickly and then it was just pressed through the shot boom and now the short story is all of that happened exactly I actually didn't catch any guts. The entrance wound is so far back, it's almost impossible to imagine, but I caught liver and lung. It's so far back that the entrance side is the side that most of the photos that you see are on, and the entrance wound has been edited off. It's back behind the last rib, and it went in right there, caught liver, caught lungs out the other side. He went 120 yards, plus or minus. I got it straight downhill. Um, and I was able to range that how far away he was and then just kind of laid down and rolled over and kicked his feet in the shrubs, you know, the way they do. But, um, that was it. Yeah, it was amazing. And there was that moment, there was that instant of my arrow going through him so fast that I was like, did I hit him? There's no way I could miss that. I mean, it was just settled in. And then I see the blood behind that last rib and I'm like okay and then he runs down the hill and I'm like oh please don't go into the deep stuff don't go where he beds you know because I'll be here I'm, I'm not going to be able to go after you know I would wait forever before I went in because I don't know how everything exited and it just so happened that he died within you know an area where I could see and uh, a lot of that anxiety was was removed from the table but Something that stands out is we had no idea. And I've said to many people that if I've seen some big, massive mainframes on the walls of other people, or you go to like the exhibits at the Western Hunt Expo, and you see a deer that scores 240, or you see a deer that scores 260, and they have these massive frames with some extras. And I'm like, I'll tell you, if one of those bucks stood up next to this deer into in that situation, 
from just pure immediate eye appeal, I don't know anyone that would have shot the deer that I shot. Even a 220 inch, you know, a, like a big 200 inch mainframe buck yep. with some extras on it would look more outstanding than this deer. And so even when I walked up on it and I started to look at it and I, you know, at that time, it's, it's antlers were the velvet was still full of blood and, and its bases were bigger around than my wrists. And I, and I was like, what in the world? And I was like, yeah, it's, it's gotta be over 240. Right. And the goal was always over 200. So I was like, man, this is cool. <laughs> um, and I put my bow down and I was just kind of overcome with, look, so many things happened. I have, I'm grateful to my friend who found it and told me to kill it. I'm grateful for my other friend who's basically wasted his entire hunt trying to help me kill this animal because it was several days of in and out trying to get this animal in a position where we could kill it. Um, all the things that my family does. The only thing that came over me was, you know, this entire thing is happening for a reason and it's bigger than me. And what am I supposed to do with it? I was really struck in that moment. I'm like, this is a very unique animal. Now I had no idea how unique. But I was struck in that moment of, this is way more than me, and what am I supposed to do with this? How am I going to use this to help someone else? That, that hasn't come over me any time I've killed an animal. But when I set my bow down, I was like, this is interesting. I, I had a level of gratitude to a lot of people and to my creator that I had never had, and a and, and an awareness came over me at that time that this is, this is bigger than you think and there's going to be something come of it. And to be very honest with you, I don't know if this is the appropriate setting, but, but um, there, were more than, there was more than one prayer said from the time I put my bow down, the time I went up and picked up my boots, because I was trying to wrap my mind around it all. Like, what, you know, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to respond to this? And how can I help others that may be exposed to hunting through this story or whatever the case may be, or those that hunt a lot and, and give them a different perspective on the opportunities that we have. But it's interesting. I've never felt that over any other animal, but that all flooded my mind for, from the time that I put my bow down next to it, walked back up, you know, to, to collect my boots and my gear that I dropped over on the other side of the outcropping, went over and tried to look for my arrow and waited for my buddy to come down with the packs and all the gear so we could quarter it up and haul it out. It was, my mind was just a wash. Now at that point in time, I had no idea that this buck went over 300 inches. In fact, like I said, I came home, dropped it off at the taxidermist. <laughs> the taxidermist pulled it out of the back of the, uh, I pulled it out of the back of the car and turned to the taxidermist and he's like, Justin, what does it feel like to kill a 300 inch deer? And I was like, ah, whatever, maybe <laughs> 240, maybe 246, right? Yeah. So I drove away. I found out months later that that guy, he works for the taxidermist. He's a good guy. His name's Ross. Um, and uh, he called the guy that owns the taxidermy shop the, the minute I drove away and said, look, we've got a deer here. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know if we should store it here. You know, he knew how unique it was and, and immediately said, that's over 300 inches. And I, I didn't believe him. Several months later, the taxidermist called me and said, hey, are you going to have this measured? He had always measured my deer. I was like, just tell me what it scores. Mount, you know, if you want to, you can put it in the hunt expo and then I'll take it home. I love that. 
right? He'll, if he, if it's a deer that he likes that he's going to put in the hunt expo, then that means I get my deer just a few months after the hunt. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so I love it. Purely selfish. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, ah, yeah, you, you should get this one measured. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, no, you want to get it measured. So we called in the Pope and young guys. The one guy measured it. And, um, I may have said this before, but the whole time I was sitting there, I went there to, because the taxidermist said, this is over 300. So I went and watched it get measured and we were there for a few hours. And, um, the first number that came on the score sheet was, was higher than 348. Um, like significantly. And the whole time we were talking about it, the first number in my mind was two. So we had talked about the deer and the score for a half an hour. And the taxidermist text Ross, the guy that originally got the buck out of my the back of my car, and said, hey, are you okay if I text Ross? He wants to know what it scores. And I was like, yeah, go ahead. So Curtis texts Ross and uh, and and Ross texts back and said, you said three, right? Not two. And I'll just use 48, but the number at that time was higher. You said 348, not 248, right? And they're like, yeah, they're laughing. And that was the first time, and I knew what the score was. I had looked at the score on the Pope and Young score sheet. That was the first time that I realized we were talking about oh, a deer wait. in the 300s. Because yeah. even though I was looking at the number on the score sheet, in my mind it was registering as two. It'd be like scoring an elk that's the biggest elk ever and putting a five there instead of a four. You're still just going to probably think four, ten, four or something. Yeah. 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 yeah I'm with you. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that's, that's the first time that ever I was like, Oh, you know, and, and, uh, and that's when I had to start to make decisions because the taxidermist is like, Hey, mm-hmm. um, you like to keep things, you know, kind of under the rug, but this isn't going to happen. I was like, uh, just mount it up, put it in the expo. Nobody will pay attention. He's like, people that know mule deer are going to look twice at this one and start to try to count things up, and you're going to have to answer questions. And <laughs> if you don't tell the story, people are going to speculate that there's more to it. And he knows where how I hunt, and he's mounted other animals of mine in the past. And so he's like, you don't do that to yourself. You either take this home, throw it in a barrel, and burn it, <laughs> if you don't want anyone to know about it yeah or you need to control the story because people are going to speculate yeah that's, that's how big it was and i was like what people the, are going to speculate yeah the irony of the situation is knowing you for quite a few years now you would have just kept flying under the radar if it was a two whatever mm-hmm. even 248 or whatever like you said you would have had it mounted you would have taken it home and you would have been hunting this year and you would have flown under the radar and no one would ever know you know, really that you were out there. I mean, really that's how it was, yeah. you know, that's how it was. But I, I, that's interesting to me, interesting perspective of like, no, like it, you need to step up and tell the story so that there's no, you know, there's, because otherwise it's just a big question mark. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. And I want to, there's something, I don't know if anyone cares about this stuff. We probably need to cut this off, but mm-hmm. there, I, early on there were people, Robbie Denning, because I had never killed anything like this. And so I was given the opportunity to reach out to Robbie Denning and say, hey, what should I do? How should I handle this? Because I don't want 
I don't want people to disrespect the animal. I mean, this is a very unique animal. I love mule deer because they're so unique in their characteristics. And uh, I had a chance to speak with people that knew mule deer and had been around mule deer. And, and um, you know, uh, gosh, Ryan Hatfield, mm-hmm. Western Hunter Magazine, I had an opportunity to talk to him and get his opinion and thoughts on how to go about it. And there was just no right way. It was in, and at the end of the day, you know, there are going to be your naysayers and people that don't like the deer or don't like the way I did this or believe that I did something else. But um, none of that, all I wanted to make sure of is that Colorado does a tremendous job managing their animals. Mule deer populations are declining. And the fact that something like this existed and we get to, get to witness this animal that's that's the key well and it it's like you you mentioned earlier in the story um all you can control is your thoughts yeah and your actions yep and that's it you know and everything else is just going to happen around you yeah and and this is a prime example you know watching the reaction and watching the you know the silly comments and the speculations and the you know whatever um you know, naive perception of what actually happened. It's like, well, that's fine. You've, you've told the story. All you can control is what you think and what you say and then how you react to you know, the situation. And so if, if nothing else, you know, you talk about what you do with this, if nothing else, I think, um, and I'm not telling you how to react or how to live your life, but, um, I've been impressed with how, you haven't reacted to some of the noise. You know what I'm saying? And if nothing else, maybe this was put, because in today's world, that's all we do. It's all anyone does about anything is react and chirp. And I'm I'm as bad as the next guy from time to time or whatever, and we could all learn a lesson, I think, of, you know, tell your story and then just live your life. I mean, it's the social media you know, vortex that we all get sucked into. And and it's not just, it's not social media. Trust me, this was happening yeah. 20 years ago. It just happened at your local sporting goods store, your local archery shop with the buck hanging on the wall and the comment with you and your buddy. Now it's just magnified, right? I mean, we we've talked in the past about, you know, social media and how to, how to address it and how to be a part of social media and social media doesn't change us it just exposes us yeah you know it just exposes us at a a scaled magnitude and so you know that that to me like you you were talking about what you do with this and and there's a lot of other forks in the road that you're gonna have to deal with down the road but if nothing else i've been impressed with and that's what i want to give you credit for is just the way that you have only can worried about controlling your words and your actions and how you respond to the situation. And that's it. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I know we're going long, but I think there, I'm going to leave names out, but there were so many people that were so cool. I mentioned Ryan Hatfield. I mentioned Robbie Denning guys that just wanted to help out people who hunt mule deer. Dude, they've had nothing but good things to yeah. say. You know, they, they really do honor and respect what we have, what, what this animal is. And then you've got like the Chris Denham's over at Western Hunter that helped me put the story out in a way that I thought was it's about as good as you can do. I don't know if there's a better way to do that. And Kendall Card helped because it was a mad rush from the time the deer got got scored to the time we were going to 
um, Western Hunter Ex- Western Hunt Expo last year. Gosh, I think we had a couple of weeks, three to five weeks, somewhere in that range, to try to put all that together. Because up until the point that point in time of scoring the deer, it was just going to go home and go on my wall. And then it was like, talk to Ryan Hatfield, and he's like, I think his comment was, you you sooner you know it's gonna it's gonna look like something yeah if you're trying to keep it at your house and no one knows it like you yep you know again if it was a 240 buck those happen they don't happen all the time but they've (laughs) happened right this has never happened it would look a certain way so so ryan hatfield said look justin you'd 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 be better off trying to stop a river with a shovel or something (laughs) like that you know and everyone had the robbie denny had some good comments like that it's like just share it like you said share the story people are going to say what they're going to say um, just so many people, that's been two great things that have come out of this. One, I'm, I'm just getting ready to launch, to, to go into the arena of using this animal to do what I think should be done. We have several. Uh, so the first is I've had an opportunity to sit down and talk to you. I had an opportunity to make friends, meet people and talk about something that I'm passionate about that I didn't have when I just was flying under the radar. The second thing is, and I've been contemplating this for quite a while, is do I submit this to Pope and Young? Um, And the answer is, I think that there should be a velvet category for mule deer. I think that there are so, or for deer, for animals, there are so many, and I can see, I understand the rationale why people think that there shouldn't be. And I know the guys say that I would only kill an animal that's hard horned. Well, that's fine, but there are several legal seasons for animals in the velvet, and so if yeah, I don't, I don't, I actually don't understand what those reasonings are because to me, if 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 it's same same, who cares? Well, from what I've been told and the things that I've read, it's just a good old boy's mentality, and I hate to say that because I'm yeah. sure somebody's going to listen to this, and I'm going to be, and I'm not fighting a battle. I'm just, I know, of. And I believe it was a very limited archery hunt, but I know of a archery mule deer in the velvet killed in Utah, in Southern Utah, that should be the velvet typical world record. It should be the, um, the archery world record. And he won't strip it. Hope and young world record. He won't strip it. So it shows up nowhere. And I, I wouldn't either. I, I've no. never, I've, let me back up. I've never been in this situation, so I really don't have the the uh, you know the luxury of saying I would or wouldn't. Yeah, I just know that when I no offense, but when I look at fake velvet, I'm like that's the last thing I would ever do, you know. And I again, if you strip the velvet or whatever, it doesn't matter to me. That's your call. But for me personally, it's like man, you know, maybe if I had that 220 typical or whatever was going to be the next the next, you know, yeah. maybe I would be singing a different tune. But no, I I won't do it and. The point is that these groups alleged to be record-keeping agencies for North American big game, and and they allege a rationale and a reason for why they keep those records, which is to kind of track herd health and age classes and all these what, what whatever it is, right? However, simply because a an animal was harvested in a legal season before it has shed its velvet. Okay, we're in an age of technology. If you're that concerned about it, freaking put the thing under an x-ray or put it in a, a, a freaking MRI booth, Yep. right? At, what, 
you can validate and verify anything you want, yep. right? But if you don't want to recognize something that was harvested legally simply because of the time of year that it was harvested, then what records are you keeping? And so I am going to submit this in the velvet category, and I'm going to submit a letter again to Pope and Young. I've decided just recently I've been exchanging emails and, and phone calls with the guys that measured it because a couple of days after the original measurement, two more, two, po the, the original measurer brought in another Pope and Young measurer and they spent a couple more hours with it, it measured it several different ways and different angles and said, this is probably what we feel the most conservative um, score is. They gave it a gross, they gave it a net and said, you could get a slightly slight variation every time you measure it. Yeah, that's that's the thing with their scoring system too. You know, it's and that's a whole other conversation. Is a deer like this? Yeah, a straight typical four point. You you can only cut that one way, really. Yeah, you know. But this deer, geez. Well, and that's why you know. But anyway, I just I, I'm grateful for all the people that I've met as a result of this, and and um, and I think that there have been enough big velvet animals taken that we need to really have if 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 we're archery hunters and there are a lot of archery seasons in the velvet at a minimum rather than just being recognized for one year there needs to be look this is the velvet world record and it's going to sit there until something else you know it's going to be in the book indefinitely yep. rather than this is velvet category it shows up in one year and then you never hear about it again that's not record keeping yeah that's, that's that's just being politically correct for, yeah. you know, just so they can say they did it. Yeah. Yep. And I've heard some, I've heard some real horror stories. I've had an opportunity to talk to some guys that have had some really big deer, um, deer buyers that, um, you know, they've had animals that there, there are some big animals out there that haven't made it into Boone and Crockett or haven't made it into Pope and Young or have been underscored there's there's some politics out there so i'm interested to see how that plays out but again it doesn't impact me it doesn't impact the deer it's just going to be a reflection on the on these agencies on how they want to deal with it and that's the way i look at it man fascinating i love it and uh you know i all that noise at the end about the score and the whatever it you know it's 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 part of it and so we we talk about it and it's not that i don't want to talk about it it just hopefully this comes across the right way. It just doesn't matter to me. You're right. Compared to just hearing the story and your journey of, you know, you and your buddies pulling this off, you know, that's, that's really the trophy, you know, for any of us really like that's yeah. what we're out there to do. And, and that's what, man, that's, what's fun to talk about. And I'm just so glad that you, uh, I'm so glad we were able to, to work this out and sit down and, your wife's probably going to divorce you and I apologize, but thanks for hanging out. She'll get to listen to this later and I'll have proof <laughs> that I was in my office with you. Alibi. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the, I mean, I would love to share some of the other experiences that I've had. I'm going to kind of do a little drip of that on Instagram, but I'm just as stoked to talk about the 190 inch deer that I killed this year because that was such a phenomenal hunt and a phenomenal stock. So I agree with you. And I throw numbers out just as references because it is a reference point that I connect with. Um, I've seen a ton of old mature deer that wouldn't break 150, right? 
That's why it's so unique. That would be harder to kill than a 190-inch four-and-a-half-year-old. 100%. But that's what's so unique about finding the combination of backcountry experience with a big antler configuration. They're just rare. And they provide experiences that are hard to find otherwise. Yeah, I've, I've said it before. We don't have a standardized competition platform you know this isn't basketball where the the hoop is exactly 10 feet from the floor and the foul line is the same distance and the rules are exactly the same and everyone's playing the same exact game with the same size ball and the same you know minutes and scoring it's not like that hunting is never going to be like that and until we get out of that mindset and realize that all we have or all that we should have is just with, like you said, within ourselves. And, and it's fine. I love using scoring systems, you know, and we go back and forth about what did this score and that score and everything. But, you know, really at the end of the day, it's only should only be as far as you and your personal, whatever you're trying to pull off and just a reference. It's just a reference mark of, you know, man, I killed a, a, you know, a bigger one than I killed last year. Or like you said, maybe it's age class. You know, I killed an older one than I killed last year or whatever. I'm going to stop killing three-and-a-half-year-old deer. I'm going to start killing what I think is a four-and-a-half-year-old deer just because yeah. it's harder. And however you want to use that in your realm, then that's the right answer, you yep. know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny as I think out loud, which is dangerous. <laughs> the fact that I use a reference point for animals that's created by – an organization that doesn't recognize an animal because it's in the velvet. <laughs> it's silly. I'm like, damn, I need to change my ways. <laughs> yeah. Why that? Why am I looking at something as 348 Pope and young when Pope and young doesn't even recognize it? Yeah. You know, and there's dissension within the ranks. There, there are a lot of people measures for Pope and young that think we should have a, a, a velvet category and because they track archery and there's a ton of archery in velvet. But anyway, it's just a reference point And, well, for some reason, it's fun to talk about. All either these deer. regardless, this was a a reference point further than any of the other reference points out there. So it's just a fascinating deer. Um, you know, you're you're a fascinating person. I love I love. Uh, I'm just right. I told you when I came in, like I'm just I'm I got the mule deer sickness lately, um, and I don't even like talking about that because it'll change a year and a half from now. I feel like you know that's just how we are as hunters, maybe but maybe not. And so I love the opportunity to sit down with guys like you that are, that are in it, you know, you're where I want to be kind of guys and, and other guys out there too. So man, thanks so much for coming on. Um, you know, uh, taking, we've, I mean, this has been hours out of your day. And so, um, where, so you are on social media now, where can, where can the masses find you? What it's, uh, I have to look that it's like the mule deer. Uh, you have to tell me. I don't, I don't know either, but it's, is it, is it my, uh, I'll post it in the, uh, in the bottom of the, it's the show notes. If it's the way I have it set up, it's backcountry times. There you go. Backcountry times. Yeah. I knew, it was, I knew it wasn't your name. Yeah. Yeah. Backcountry times. So, um, on Instagram and then anywhere else that you spend time that if people have a question or a nice comment, they want to reach out and maybe that that's fine just leave we'll just leave it at that back you know, country lo- I would love to answer questions I can't guarantee that they're of any value my answers but yeah well and you know I don't know 
maybe this is a better platform for you than anything. And so feel free to direct and, and I'll leave that to your discretion, but direct, uh, you know, emails to finding backcountry at gmail.com and yeah. I'll pass anything I get that's relative to this on to you. And you can decide if, Hey, maybe we should jump on another episode, you know, months from now or whatever you want to do with That'd it. That'd be phenomenal. I'll even send you answers to questions via email. You can throw it out there. Yeah. Uh, this is fun for me because, um, just looking at Google earth and making plans, that's one aspect of it, but being able to talk about it with people that I think do value it. That's fun, man. Yeah. Don't get that opportunity every day. Yeah. Not in this office. No. (laughs) Okay. Till next time. Thanks for your time. Thanks Justin. Hey everybody. Thank you for listening to the finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.